invite you to remain standing out of celebration for God's life-giving word and grab your copy of God's word if you have it and turn to Luke chapter 8 is where we will be this morning. If you don't happen to have a Bible, we would be more than delighted for you to use one of the Bibles that is in a chair back in front of you and turn to page 866 this morning as we want to look at verses 40 through 56 of Luke 8, which is the very end of the 8th chapter, which thus means we are now, after today, one-third of the way through our study through Luke's gospel that began all the way back after Thanksgiving of 2017. So slowly but surely, we are making our way through this great news about our Lord Jesus Christ. And so before we begin our study, let me uh, get us going by reading our sermon text and then praying Uh, Once again, that God would bless our study, and then we will dive in together. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went. And the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before Jesus, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed her to eat something. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we do bow before you even now, confessing that we are a needy people, that we need the cleansing blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. We need his life-giving power that alone can bring us back from the death our sins deserve. So we pray that you would send your Spirit among us even now as we study your Word, that he would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from this truth, That he would open our ears that we might be able to hear with faith. Open our minds that we 
may be able to know you in our hearts, that we might be able to love you. Help me to hear even you speaking now as I preach as a dying man unto dying people. Help us to listen, unsure of ever hearing another sermon after this day. So do us good through your word and glorify your son. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A few months ago, I happened to read an article on the most common fears in American society. And by fears, this article is speaking mostly about clinical phobias. So I wonder which fear would you think is the most common one among American citizens? It's the fear of glossophobia, which is speaking in public. Kids, I wonder what your greatest fears are. What tends to scare you? According to this article, at least, the other ones at the top of the list for Americans would include things like claustrophobia, fear of tight and confined spaces, aquaphobia, which is a fear of water, astrophobia, which is a fear of thunder and lightning, acrophobia, which is a fear of heights. And I tell you that because we come to a text this morning that once again, you would have seen this last week with Pastor Belanger's sermon, Jesus is addressing fear. And he's going to address it in a way that calls for faith. Because as Pastor Belanger last week walked us through verses 22 through 39 of Luke's gospel, we saw that Jesus had authority. He was sovereign over things like storms and demons. He calmed the sea with a word. He cast out a legion of demons with a word that faith removes fear. So what are the fears that tend to plague you most? Surely at some point in your life, if it hasn't ever happened already, fears will assail you, fears will assault you, and what will you do with them? Will you find those fears causing you to fail and flounder? Or, as our text is calling us even today, Will faith in Christ, he who is sovereign over nature, demons, disease, and death, will faith in Christ be the divine antidote to your fear? So you would have noticed, I hope, as we just read through the text, what we have before us this morning are, are, very, are two very simple scenes, yet supernatural scenes, of course, about Jesus' healings. So students, when you come to a miracle of Jesus in the gospel, I always want you to think about these miracles as windows. Because don't you know that you, you make a window not to stare at the window itself. The window is there to look through it to something else. And in that exact same way, when we come to Jesus' miracles in the gospel, we're not to merely stare at the miracle itself, but look through the miracle to see what it tells us about the person of Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to see the truth of this, these two scenes rightly... And behold our Lord Jesus Christ in faith. We're going to see many things about his majesty, beauty, and glory. But I do want to just focus our attention on this main theme I hope we can discover together this morning. Is that you can trust Christ because he is strong enough to save. You can trust Jesus Christ because he is strong enough to save. And you might be in here this morning and have not truly trusted in Jesus Christ. Come to him in simple faith, 
And I hope you will see, not only is he strong enough to save, but he delights and is compassionate to those who need saving. Because what we proclaim unto you this morning, and let us be comforted once again from Luke's gospel, is that we proclaim a Savior who is both able and willing to save. If he was able, but not willing, what kind of a Savior would he be? If he was willing, but not able, what kind of salvation would that be? He is willing and able, the strong Savior in whom you can trust. And so we have two simple scenes that I want to walk through under two simple headings. First of all, peace in the midst of despair in verses 40 through 48. And then 49 through 56, life in the midst of death. That Jesus, in his sovereign strength, is able and willing to give you peace in the midst of despair and us life in the midst of death. So where we left off in Jesus' ministry, if you look back to chapter 8, verse 37, Jesus has just cast out this great legion of demons from a man. And the people in the country of the Gerasenes, they are sore afraid at Jesus' power. So they ask him to just leave their country. So he and his disciples get back in their boat. They head west across the lake once again to the land of Galilee. And notice the contrast and the reception he has just received in the Gerasene land to now where he has received in Galilee. Notice verse 40. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And in particular, our story is emphasizing one man who's uniquely waiting for Jesus to return. You'll notice, of course, in verse 41, that this man is named Jairus, who is a ruler of the synagogue. So when you think of Jairus, you need to think of someone who had social capital, even in some ways political prominence in his Jewish culture as a ruler of the synagogue. So he was in charge in his synagogue duties of not only making sure that the synagogue teaching was orthodox, Building maintenance and repair would have fallen under his authority. It was his duty to get scrolls of scripture that they could be read in the Sabbath worship services. And even the order of worship in a Sabbath service was under his authority as he would have selected in all likelihood the prayers and the readings and the teachings that would have gone on. As a ruler in the synagogue, surely he had unique knowledge of what Jesus had been doing all throughout the land with his teaching, with his miracles, but it's not his authority as a synagogue ruler that brings him to come to Jesus. If we look at the end of verse 41 through 42, he came to Jesus, falling at his feet, and implored Jesus to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, some of you know full well the sorrow and the hurt and the anguish that such a man like Jairus would have been going through at this moment. An only child seemingly knocking at death's door all too early at the end of his rope, coming to the only one that he believes can do anything about it. And maybe in your life you, you've stared down the tunnel, maybe you even are staring down the tunnel at the loss of a loved one, wondering if I bow down and fall before the Lord Jesus Christ, imploring him to intervene. Will he do anything about it? Can he do anything about it? Well, you'll see in verse 42 that Jesus willingly goes with Jairus, 
But as he goes to the street there in this land of Galilee, people are pressing around him. And this word for pressed here has already showed up in chapter 8. If you look back at verses 7 and 14, you'll see Luke used the word in those contexts referring to the thorns that choke the life of the plant that has just received the seed from the sower. So this is a crowd choking in around Jesus, constraining him as he is on his way to Jairus' house to give attention to his beloved daughter. And look who comes in verse 43 to Jesus. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So you understand who Jairus is. The next person that comes to Jesus is, in many ways, the exact opposite. Here is one who has, for over a decade, suffered a disease that would mean she was ceremonially unclean. She could never have partaken of religious services, never have entered the temple, never touched a friend, never been near her family. The law would have mandated that her husband would separate from her because of her disease. She is a picture of desperation and despair. You know, kids, you can think about it. If you had a sickness for 12 years that meant you were never allowed to go to church, never allowed to be with your friends, never allowed to touch your family members, would you not feel great fear and anxiety, great desperation and despair as you have need? So she comes to Jesus and notice what she does in verse 44. She came up behind him, touched the fringe of his garment, which is likely this tassel that would have been behind his robe. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. Jesus says, who touched me? People around him are all denying it. And you see Peter's somewhat humorous response as the one who always speaks up for the disciples, the leader of God's chosen 12. He says, Lord, I don't know what you're on about. Everyone's touching you. What do you mean? Who touched you? Well, look at what Jesus responds with in verse 46. Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And notice, what has just happened in such an eventful yet quick few verses? And understand the power and authority and the strength of Jesus Christ. Impurity flowed out of her as power flowed out of him. The law would have mandated that her touch would have made him unclean. Yet what happened? It was not her unclean nature transferring to his clean nature, but his clean nature transforming her unclean state. Such is the power of Jesus Christ. At a touch, she is made whole. She is made right. Well, she knows, you notice verse 47, that she can't stay hidden. It's almost as though she had wanted to come into the crowd. It was so so crowded and choking and pressing in on Jesus that she could just get a quick hand on him and that she could just kind of shrink away and go back to her life now restored to health. But Jesus has, in many ways, shown the spotlight on her. And you'll see in verse 47 that she saw she was not hidden. So she came trembling and falling down before Jesus, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had immediately been healed. Why do you think she was trembling? Was it because she knew she wasn't supposed to be there touching people? Was it what she perceived in Jesus' eye when he said, who touched me? 
Was it the choking crowd, surely full of self-righteous religious people looking down on her because they knew who she was? They knew what state she was in, wondering why is she here? Yet, look at the comfort of Christ in verse 48. His first word unto her. Imagine the soothing, comforting power of hearing this. The first word from the Lord's lips, daughter. And the reason it's important, kids, is because this is the only time in all of the four Gospels that Jesus refers to a woman as daughter. It's a sign of adoption. It's a word of welcome into God's kingdom. She who is utterly isolated, utterly destitute, utterly stricken from God's people, separated and alien, now has been welcomed at a touch. Or at least it seems like a touch, doesn't it? Because if you look back at verse 44, 45, 46, and 47, there's a word that shows up in each one of those verses. Students, do you see what it is? It's the word touch. Emphasizing this kind of physical action going on in this scene. But notice what Jesus says actually brought about her salvation in 48. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Which you could translate as your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So perhaps you've been in churches before. You're not a Christian. You wonder why it is that Christians make such a big deal about trusting God. Believing in Jesus. Having faith in him. It's because we confess that faith alone is the instrument by which anyone is saved. It's not anything you do that brings salvation. And what he's saying here is not just the, it's not the touch that brought about her cleansing. It was the faith in him who alone can cleanse. Welcome her into God's kingdom. Even restore her and reconcile her to God's people. Do you see the supernatural power of a grace work? Faith, reconciliation, restoration, adoption, cleansing and forgiveness, all at the touch of faith. And imagine this woman hearing the benediction, the promise of peace from Jesus Christ. She's been away from synagogue worship for at least 12 years, never hearing the benediction at the end of the sermon. Go now in peace. And what does Jesus say? Go in peace tender, compassionate love of Jesus Christ. Even in speaking on this text, the great Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, if a man were poisoned, what a comfort would it be to him to hear that there's an herb in the garden that could heal him. If he had gangrene in his body and were given over by all his friends, how glad would he be to hear of a surgeon that could cure him? Oh, sinner, you are full of diseases. You have a gangrened soul, but there is a physician who can recover you. It's a physician named Jesus Christ, the one who is strong enough to save, the one who is able to then, by faith, give you peace in the midst of your despair. But sovereign strength of Jesus is not done in Luke chapter 8, because now we're going to see that he's sovereign and strong enough to give life in the midst of death. Because don't forget that this story actually started with a different character, didn't it? Jairus. Like, where's Jairus gone in the story? He's got a daughter on his deathbed. So look at verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. 
And is it not in some way so emblematic of how the world approaches Jesus? He can't do anything about that. That's too hard for anyone bringing a person back from the dead. Or even consider with me for a second Jairus' state at this moment. Because he comes to Jesus, earnest and eager for Jesus to return to his land, that he can take Jesus quickly home to deal with his dying daughter. And along the way, the crowds are pressing in, in some ways crushing Jesus, choking out the possibility of Jesus getting to Jairus' home in time. It was in every way a delay and interruption to Jairus' desires. Do you often realize that God's timing, Christ's timing is not your own? That he often delights in delays? That sometimes sickness and suffering and sorrow can teach you things a sermon never can? We should even ask, why the delay? You might remember from the beginning of chapter 7, a centurion has a servant who needs healing. And do you remember if Jesus went to that house or not? He didn't go. He just said with his word from afar, essentially, be healed. And the servant was healed. Why did he even have to go to Jairus' house? He could have just said the word from afar and she have been made whole. But he doesn't. So we should ask the question of why? What is it about the scene that ensues that gives reason to the delay that brings death? So you see what Jesus commands in verse 50. On hearing this, Jesus answered him and said, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Fear indeed is answered only by faith. Faith is the divine remedy and medicine for fear. So if you ever find yourself at a place in your life where fears, anxieties, stresses, worries, doubts are controlling you, you can be sure that in that place, at least, of your heart and soul, that you have relinquished, at least, your grasp on the Lord Jesus Christ, that faith, as it shrinks, fear grows. Do not fear, he says, only believe. And so Jesus comes to the house, eventually arrives there with Jairus, and you'll notice in verse 51 that he goes into the house with, presumably, Jairus and his wife, and then he takes only the three inner disciples, Peter, John, and James, and as they go into the house, they would have passed these mourners, the text says. And what you need to understand in certain ways that this was artificial mourning in the Jewish culture. Every Jewish citizen was obligated by law to hire mourners for their funeral service. Loud weeping and wailing would have emanated from any home that had experienced a death. So it's why you'll see, even in verse 53, that they seemingly can shift automatically from weeping to laughter at what Jesus says in verse 52. They're professional mourners in many ways. What are they laughing at Jesus about? Look what he says in verse 52. Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. I want you to pay attention to verse 52 because I think this is the central point of this miraculous scene, what Jesus wants us to know. We've already seen him in chapter 7 heal someone. We know he has authority and power and strength to bring life back from the dead. We know that already. So what then is maybe unique about this story that we didn't see previously? Well, last night I was reading this passage to our kids before they went to bed. It's something I generally try to do on a Saturday evening as they go to sleep. And we got to the 
uh, verses before us now in verses 52 and 53, and my oldest son, Hudson, who's almost eight, interrupted me and said, Dad, hold on a second. Jesus isn't telling the truth, is he? He said that she's sleeping, but they're saying that she's actually dead. And I said, well, just wait for the sermon tomorrow, son. <laughs> because that is such a precious, amazing truth that Jesus wants you to know. For what is he saying? First of all, you need to notice, they're laughing at his promise, really, of resurrection there. And isn't it true that the world always mocks the, the Christian confession that Jesus rose again? It's one thing to believe in a Savior who died. It's another thing to believe in a Lord of Lords and King of Kings who died and rose again three days later and promises future resurrection to all those who trust in him. That is laughable material to an unbelieving world. But what is comforting truth for his children is what he says in verse 52. For those who die in Christ, it's not death. It's falling asleep. You will go to bed tonight, won't you? fully expecting to awake in the morning. The Christian goes to his deathbed in full faith of waking at that eternal morning when the sun of righteousness dawns upon the earth and brings with him the new heavens and the new earth. So maybe you're in here tonight or in here this morning and you're not a Christian. What do you think about death? What comforts or confidences might you find on your deathbed? If you're in here and you are a Christian, see the comfort of this news. And one day you might gather around your family on your deathbed. There will be tears, rightly so. There will be mourning. There will be genuine weeping. For death is a despicable thing. But what comfort to look your family in the eye if God by his spirit so allows you and says, don't worry. I'm just going to sleep. I will arise and awake soon enough. One of the great preachers and evangelists in the country of England in the early 1900s was F.B. Meyer. He died in 1929, and just a few days before his death, he sat down at his desk to write a letter to one of his closest friends. And this is what he said. I have just heard, to my great surprise, that I have but a few days to live. It may be that before this reaches you, I shall have entered the palace, but... Don't trouble to write, we shall meet in the morning. Such is the hope and faith of anyone who dies in Jesus Christ. He gives life in the midst of death. For the believer, to die in Christ is to just go to sleep because it is not the end. So have you ever wondered why the New Testament authors pick up on this idea and so often speak about fellow brothers and sisters in Christ dying, but they speak about it as though they have actually just fallen asleep? Because Jesus says, she isn't dead. She's just asleep. So what does he say in verse 54? But taking her by the hand, he called her, child, arise. Which would have been common in the Jewish culture. In Hebrew, mothers would have wakened their children from naps, from their night's sleep, by saying this very phrase, child, arise. And verse 55 says, her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. For eating in that culture was a sign of life. Life in the midst of death. Peace in the midst of despair. You can trust in Jesus Christ because he is strong enough to save. 
But understand, there is even a more forceful point I think the text wants you to see this morning. You must trust in Christ. For He alone is strong enough to save. Last week, our family made a, a journey up to Louisville, Kentucky and back. So we took our six kids and loaded into the 12-passenger van that we affectionately call the Black Beast and spent a few hours in each leg of the trip normally listening to music that was streaming off our phones into the van sound system because our kids have a few different playlists that they really enjoy. And our almost five-year-old Haddon is the rock star of the family, and so he's always desperate for certain music to be booming from the sound system. And on the way home, we had kind of ventured uh, off the main drag, if you will, in Arkansas, and after maybe about 30 minutes or so, we ran out of service on our phones. So Haddon, within a second, said, where'd the music go? And I said, we're out of service. Can't stream music. And you could kind of hear exasperation in his tone. He said, Daddy, I don't know what that means. <laughs> so I tried to explain it again. He was totally confused. Service brings streaming music. Daddy, I don't know what you're talking about. Where did the music go? We come to simple yet stunning scenes in God's word and always run away with the danger of not knowing what he means for us to hear. Why has he given us two scenes showing us again his strength in salvation? So lest you leave this morning tempted to say, I don't know what he meant, let us begin to close with two simple thoughts. What the text is meant to tell us, among the things we have already looked at, is first of all, Jesus has absolute authority. Because if you zoom back just a little bit, step back just a little bit in chapter 8, what has he demonstrated authority over? Stormy seas. Nature belongs to him. Demons cast out by him. Flee in terror before him. A 12-year disease that no human physician can answer with a simple touch goes away. Death conquered with two words, child, arise. He has all authority. And don't you know, if you've been walking with us through Luke's gospel, that he continually is presenting before us a portrait of Jesus as the one who is indeed the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He has all authority over everything. One thing you can easily miss, though, in this story is how it's telling us he has authority over all people. For who comes to Jesus? Kids, what's different about Jairus and this woman suffering from the sickness? Well, you can say, first of all, of course, is there's a man, there's a woman, but they span the whole scope of that society from political prominence and power, social standing and respectability as the ruler of the synagogue on the inside of the kingdom of God, all the way over to she who was poor, no money, spent it all, outcast, destitute, isolated, solitary, desperate and despairing. And he claims mine to each. That there is not a person in this world to whom Christ's authority does not stand over. Therefore, it leads us to the second point, doesn't it? Jesus has, he possesses absolute authority and Jesus demands absolute 
allegiance. Because what is the text emphasizing in Christ's words, isn't it? Your faith has saved you. Do not fear, only believe. So as we look out, even upon our life, we are always with two eyes, as it were, looking upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the two eyes of faith, one eye that sees the total inability of man, because we've seen it in Luke chapter 8, haven't we? The disciples can't do anything about this storm that arises, other than cower in fear and want to flee in terror. The family members and friends of the garrison demoniac, they can't do anything to get rid of the legion of demons, so they cast them out. They send this man to be in isolation and total seclusion among the stones. The human physicians can't do anything about the 12 years of blood that won't stop. The family, the mourners, the weepers, they can't do anything about the 12-year-old child lying dead on the bed. There's a total inability within man to remedy our deepest problems. But the other eye of faith, what does it see? Not just the total inability of man, our other eye sees the total ability of Jesus Christ. With a word, mega calm over the sea. With a word, demons gone. With a touch, cleansing comes. With a word, life returns. So each one of us, do we not stand in front of God, even sit before Him now, presenting problems? Problems that may even bring us fear. Christ alone is strong enough to save. He alone can cleanse you from the sickness called sin. He alone can raise you from the wages that sin deserves, which is death. So will you trust in Him who is both able and willing to save you? Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, is absolute in his power and authority. We do also thank you that he is absolute in his compassion and tenderness. He is able to save us, that he desires to save us, that he brings cleansing, he brings reconciliation, he brings peace in our despair, life in our death. So Lord, we do pray this day that each and every one of us, for the first time, or maybe just once again on an ordinary Lord's Day morning, turn from our sin and look upon Jesus Christ in faith, knowing that he alone is strong enough to save weak and lowly sinners such as us. And we do pray it all in his name. Amen.